NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Mm. Yes, very good. We're the good. You're the good guys. Exactly. There you go. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk Sports Edition. Today, we're going to talk about counting cards. <laughs> Stuff that the casinos hate about you if you have the talent to pull that off. I got with me, as always, my co-host, Chuck Nice. Chuck, a baby. Hey, what's happening? All right, professional stand-up comedian and actor and game show host. And, uh, mm -hmm. Brain Games on National Geographic. Very cool. Yes, and, 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 and card one, counter. <laughs> and the one person who has actual professional athletic street cred among us, Gary O'Reilly. Gary, always good to have you here, man. Pleasure's mine. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for making us legit. So, Gary, what, I mean, card counting, we've all heard about it. We've seen mm. movies about it. We yeah. wish we had that ability. <laughs> and again, we don't know if you can be trained for it. And so you decided to create a whole show on it. So what do you have in store for us today? Uh, a very, hopefully, a story that will not just be fascinating, but so interesting to a number of people. We are going to meet someone with... An interesting and amazing life story. It basically starts as a preteen refugee who became a professional blackjack player on the infamous MIT blackjack team. So, Neil, please meet our guest. Semyon, welcome to Star Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, uh, there's been a film made and books based on you and documentaries about your life. How do you go from being a computer science, early, early computer science geek to Card to cards or blackjacks? Like, what, what is the, how do you go from A to B in that conversation? Oh, well, uh, one day in 1991, I was walking down an infinite corridor at MIT and I saw a poster on the wall. And the poster said, Make $10,000 over the summer, play blackjack in the Vegas casinos. And, you know, that sounded pretty good. So I signed <laughs> up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to be clear, um, MIT, you could probably get away with that. But but there could be some places where that same sign would say, this summer, lose $10,000. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> casino. Right. But MIT is probably one of the few places where the poster would be believed. A believable poster. Believe. All right. That's right. All right. And you know, the truth is, I, I, I'm not sure I would have believed it, except I happened to play a lot of Pac-Man when I was a kid in Texas. And, uh, you know, the video game. And mm. so one day I went to the library and when they... I needed to make my quarter last a very long time because I, I couldn't get a second quarter. You know, it was just one quarter to be had. Um, and so I went to the library and I found, I looked up books on Pac-Man and there was only one book uh, by this uh, guy named Ken Luston. I read the book and I was able to play Pac-Man for a long, long time until I didn't feel like playing it anymore. Uh, but then I went back and, and noticed that he had a bunch of other books and all his other books were about blackjack. So uh, he was this, one of these guys that was able to beat, I guess, the casinos in Atlantic City when they first opened up about a decade before, before I played. Wait, so all this started because you tried to milk a quarter for as much t Pac-Man time as you could get from it. That's right, in the very beginning. See, but this is, this, this is so very important right now for all of you parents out there to, to take note Okay, <laughs> because we all think that video games are deleterious to our children's mental health and to their academic academics. And uh, we say, oh, you're going to ruin yourself by playing these video games. But it's really not about the video games. It's about the child, the kid. So if your kid ever says, I'm going to the library to get some books on video games. They're going to be okay. That's you know right. what I mean? That kid's going to be all right. As long as they're telling the truth. Because if yeah, they're not, the and they're going somewhere else. <laughs> right. Forget about it. Right. So, Semyon, okay, so you go from Pac-Man to Blackjack. It's a pretty big leap. So you must have had some kind of superpower somewhere up your sleeve. So, so what is it? Is it total recall? concentration, or do you just have to be good with numbers? What's the deal there for a blackjack player? No, none of the above. I mean, All right. the superpower, I think, was twofold. Well, one was, I guess, that I, I had this notion that I might go to the library and read something. That's already, right? Like, that's the privileged background, right? The examples set in the youth, I think, that I had, right? I had educated parents. Um, the other superpower, I think, maybe was... Just not being able to get that second quarter, like having the motivation uh, to read the book, and then later having the you motivation to work my ass off. Like when I saw, when I met the MIT Blackjack team, having read the books about it, you know, I felt like it was a very lucky opportunity that I actually get to meet these people, you know. And I wanted to make money. I wanted to make a lot more than ten thousand dollars, and I needed to. It was a real, you know, goal for me at the time. Um, it's not necessarily the best goal for a young man to have, but to me at the time, you know, that was the goal. We were poor, right? Like we lived in the projects. It sucked. And, um, you know, that was the main, that was the main uh, differentiator, just the, the willingness to work my ass off and like do this stuff over and over and over and over again. There was no rocket science. There was no math genius, you know, I mean, coming up with those systems probably required a lot of knowledge and intelligence, but I actually didn't come up with them. You know, I, I was taught how to do it. And then I ended up, you know, running my own group and teaching a bunch of other people how to do it. But it was all about like diligence, hard work, uh, record keeping for sure. Um, and just repeating things over and over and over again until they got it right. So there's another thing for you parents out there to understand, okay? Is if you are doing okay, maybe you are middle class or middle, middle class, upper middle class, okay? Let your children be poor. Don't give your children any money. 
<laughs> that will motivate them. <laughs> I, I, you know, my father used to say all the time, I'd be like, Dad, can I get some sneakers? He'd be like, go ahead. I'd be like, okay, can I have the money? And be like, you, you want sneakers? You go get them. And then I would say, but, and I would say, but Dad, we have money. And then he would say, no, son, I have money. <laughs> I, I earn the money. <laughs> I have money. You are broke. You are poor. You don't have crap. See, so you, there you go. <laughs> and that's how Chuck right. started and robbing the, banks. The see, that's how that it's hard, right? It's really hard to pull it off. I mean, I have six kids, right? And I mean, I have money now, right? And so, like, it's easier said than done. It sounds like you did a pretty good job. I do my best, <laughs> but it's not easy, right? It's not easy. <laughs> no, so, it's not. All right, let's let's jump from being really incentivized to make this thing successful. You then have to, you must have to acquire a certain skill set. Um, are we are we into game series here? Do you start to deploy those sort of things, or is it something different again? Or probabilities as well? As yeah, the entire totally. Range of there you go. It was none of those things. You know, it had to be something. It had to be something. You were making money. I don't know. I just did it. I don't know. Like 20 years ago, these books and stories about what they did came out, and I did a lot of interviews. And you know, people always wanted to hear about the mess TV and stuff, and I kind of played along. But at this point, you know, I'll I'll tell it to you like it really was. Okay, we we could have trained anybody to do it. It was the same as like the math skills required were you know second grade level, like literally counting like three, four, five. Five, four, three, two. You know, um, just keeping track of like one number and adding one, subtracting one, and and just not getting distracted. Now that's the level of skills that were required. The rest of it was just memorizing a system that other people already came up with. It, it was pretty rudimentary. It it required discipline. It required uh, not drinking while you're doing it, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It didn't require any great theoretical, mathematical thinking. That was a myth. So you know, it's, the, it, go on, Chuck. I was just going to say it's. Uh, so I'm really attached to this story because my father was a gambler. And I don't mean like he gambled. I mean, he was a gambler. Chuck, and, Chuck uh, that sounds like a blue song ready to be written. My uh, father was a gambling man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You went to hold him and went to walk away. And went to yeah. Dun, so, dun, dun, dun. yeah. My daddy was a gambler. <laughs> In Philadelphia. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. Didn't always win. <laughs> we got a but, number one on our hands. Yeah. But the funny thing is that uh, he did count cards. And I don't, I don't know the system that he used, but... Uh, it was, and and maybe Simeon could tell me what it is, but it basically was, there's a count, it's plus one, zero, or minus one. That's all he did. And um, you bet according to where the count is, where uh, the number of decks and the cards that are in the deck. And you had just have to have the discipline to bet wisely during the entire shoe and, you know, to know when to bet when the count is up, down, or zero. I mean, that's, I never did it. So that's what I understood him to be doing. But there were times I would see him make a crap ton of money. And then there were times that, you know, uh, that led to him being divorced uh, from my mother. So. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and his dog left him. Da, exactly. da, da, da. <laughs> <What's>... <laughs> I'm not sure those two are related at all that, you know, because <laughs> losing all your money can, can lead to getting divorced, but making a whole bunch of money could also lead to getting divorced. Yeah, very good point. You're absolutely right. Point. You're right about that. You're right about that. Okay, so <laughs> if you didn't do anything, we're asking you, what did, what did you do? 
That's what I did. I did the same thing your father did. I think the difference was that we had a group of people who were very diligent about doing it. I think ah. most people kind of learn, sort of think they can kind of do it, right? We tested people all the time. We checked their skills uh, not only once, but before each trip. Uh, it You have a very small advantage, right? And it takes a long time to get to the long term. And in any short period of time, you could win or lose. It's kind of random, right? But you have like this tiny little one percentage or half a percentage. And after months or even years of playing, you're going to know you're going to be ahead. And yeah. in the real world, people get distracted. People get tired, right? People get emotional about their wins and losses. And yes. uh, they deviate from the system without even realizing it. So that's, I think, what distinguished us as real professionals from the many thousands of other people who kind of do their account cards. And it's funny because the, the, the casino does that but they don't need the discipline because the house rules don't change no matter what. But the house rules are set up so that this slight percentage of um, advantage that they have means that over the long term, they're always going to win over the long term as a casino. Wait, just maybe be clear. What, what he said was, Chuck, that there are fluctuations from hand to hand yeah. Even from day to day, that can go up or down. But if you stay diligent with the system, right. the small percent that you gain against the average will accumulate, right. and then you can basically bank those winnings reliably. It, and it, that's it, that's the deal. And they call that having long money. You got to have long money. Long money, okay. <laughs> so, Semyon, in, in the intro, I talked about high-low system and card steering. So break down card steering for me, because I think we've realized now that if you're going to play blackjack, you have got to have ninja-like concentration and, as they say, always watching. So can you just, even just for me and, and the rest of our audience that don't know, card steering, please unlock that for us. Gary, we'll get to that question after the break. Oh. I'm dying. I know. Sorry. See what I did there? See what <laughs> yeah. I did there? Keep them yeah. hanging. Keep them yeah. hanging. So we'll be right back with our special guest, card counter extraordinaire, Simeon Dukash on StarTalk, Sports Edition. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. 
Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. We're back with Semyon Dukac. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, Star Talk Sports Edition. Semyon Dukac is an MIT computer scientist, entrepreneur, and who made his mark counting cards in blackjack. And we're trying to get to the bottom of this. Where how it happened, where, where it came from, uh, what special talents it was. And, and, and by the way, it's not illegal to count cards. It's just casinos don't like it when you do that. Mm-hmm. Because it tips things in your favor instead of their favor. Which, so, which brings us to our first question. How did you get out of Vegas with both of your knees? <laughs> still, still in your legs. <laughs> okay, so, so Semyon, I need you to define for us certain terms. We went, into, we went into the break with Gary asking you about, what was it, Gary? So uh, there's a couple of techniques, and I, I'm, Semyon, I'm sure, will we'll be able to, as I said, unlock those for us. One in particular, which sounds very interesting, card steering. Mm. Card steering. So uh, if you will. It's not only that. Sure. I want to know about quantified thinking. There's all these yeah. terms. Well, we're going to get there. Yeah, okay, good. It's, it's card steering. Mm-hmm. So... Semyon, what do you got for us there? So we have a number of, uh, let's say, more advanced, more complicated techniques that at least in theory could generate a, a bigger advantage than the 1% or so advantage you can get with card counting. And so uh, card steering, there was a few uh, variations of it. it sometimes it involved uh, tracking sequences of cards uh, through the shuffle, roughly uh, being able to kind of see that there might be four or five cards in between each in a sequence after shuffling and kind of predict when the last one is going to come. Uh, it wasn't always possible, right? Um, sometimes we could see the last card on a shoe after all the shuffling is done. And then when you cut the cards, we, we would learn to cut a precise number of cards, like exactly 52 cards, let's say, exactly a deck from the back of the shoe. And then we would know that the back card would come out number 52, right? And that's exactly how many you cut which you could get good at by just practicing for hours a day of cutting exactly 52 cards. Again, yeah, I mean, don't people get shot for this? <laughs> just, well, uh, maybe. <laughs> I've seen enough movies where, like, a, a Smith & Wesson beats four aces, okay? Yeah. I, I, we Smith & Wesson definitely beats four aces, but not so much in, in the corporate-run, public company-run Vegas of the 90s. Okay. In the Vegas of the 60s and 70s, yeah, it would have, wouldn't have worked very well. And uh, we did play a lot internationally, and there were some places where we probably shouldn't have played. Um, but you think the, the stuff we did wasn't <laughs> legal. We didn't 
we didn't uh, you know violate any rules of the game we didn't cheat uh, which was important because we did get kicked out all the time caught all the time so had we done anything illegal they would have prosecuted us certainly uh, so we were very careful not not to break the law you were running computer simulations you were replicating live casino environments so as your blackjack players would be comfortable and not dazzled by a casino environment. I mean, this basically is almost, when you say you analyzed results, you looked at things, and you weren't just looking at successes, you were looking at failures. Now, then if you apply quantified thinking, how do you approach this group of data and then bring it forward successfully for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'll give you an example because I think that's some of the work that actually distinguished us from some of the other groups that weren't as successful, right? It wasn't those card steering and advanced techniques because those ended up not working most of the time, honestly. They, were, they only worked in certain situations. At the end of the day, we made the money doing the well-known card counting techniques that have already been written about, but we did it more diligently. And I think um, running simulations to, to predict you know, how much you should have won uh, in order to kind of track what really happened and then running these examinations basically where in in our own sort of classroom environment we would try to distract people right we would have one person test another person but someone else would be distracting them like trying to talk to them trying to you know offer them drinks or whatever happens in the real casino and uh, we would track how many mistakes people would make people would always invariably make some mistakes in the counting like they just weren't perfect they couldn't see every single card right and so uh, we would get a better understanding model of, of the real life performance of, of the card counter in the casino rather than the theoretical performance that, uh, you know, the books say you're going to have. And so based on that, we would know the right amount to bet and the right way to play. Um, oh. And that made all the difference, right? Is using that data and being realistic about our own capabilities. But from wow. one decade to another, computers gain speed and precision and accuracy and algorithms get better. So did any of this improve over the decades from the 90s to today, for example? Probably to some extent, but I, I would say, uh, you know, we've never used computers in the casino or anything like that. Like that, that, would, that probably would be cheating. Uh, we, we didn't work on any of those kinds of things. Uh, we merely used them to better analyze and better understand how we should be playing. Uh, and I think, yeah, I'm sure there were improvements, but uh, for the most part, I think the technology was sufficient at the time um, to be able to improve discipline, right? And to be able to model how we will perform realistically in a casino environment and and design the tests that we had to apply to each other to make sure that we were good enough. Because you really had to be very precise. You couldn't make very many errors, right? Right. Semyon, so, so, if, if, if we look at sport, they're their quantified thinking, their data analytics. They analyze different things now, different metrics than the ones they did 10, 20 years ago. What were what would you be looking at now that you weren't looking at back then in the 90s that would change the game even more? Or have you just washed it away and not considered it? You know, I, honestly, I haven't given much thought to, to the game of black. Okay. Well, I, I mean, the one thing that's changed uh, dramatically in many casinos... Um, and I'm not particularly sure if it's because of, um, you know, uh, people like Simeon, but I, is the auto shuffler um, uh, uh, combined with eight decks 
and the auto shuffler shuffles after like so many hands. Not even, it doesn't go an entire shoe. It's like you, you, you pick it up, you put it back in, it's shuffled like after three hands. Or sometimes you'll see that they do it, um, it looks random. Like, uh, is it, I'm not even sure if the dealer is just instructed to do it or if they're just like, ah, just do it, just do it, you know? But that's, that's got to ch have changed things tremendously for card counters. Well, that's right, because Simeon, I, you know, when you're just playing at home, it's one deck of cards. And so you can get a sense whether the remaining cards to be dealt are or royal heavy or you know low card heavy you get a sense of that but with eight decks how can you possibly know that you get a sense of it in the same exact way you know it's just that uh, with one deck of cards let's say three three extra little cards came out and you know there are three extra big cards left in the deck okay so if there's eight decks you're gonna want to see a lot more you're gonna want to see like 20 or 25 little extra cards come out which will still happen the same fraction of the time, right? Like you just have to play long enough until that happens. And then you bet a lot. So it's, it's no different. It's just the numbers are just a little larger. But you do have to reset every time they reset your, your brain computer every time they shuffle. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so to answer your other question, yes. Uh, if they start shuffling all the time, you, you can't, these techniques don't work. And, right. but however, this isn't like a modern Sherman. The casinos knew about card counting since the 60s. Um, right. They occasionally make the rules, and there's a bunch of other rule variations besides shuffling that they could do to make card counting not work very well. But the thing is, millions of people know about card counting. It's it's marketing for the game. Like blackjack makes more money than any other card game in the casino, or really anything else besides slot machines, precisely because people know it could be beat. And so right. I think uh, there's competition between casinos. Uh, they players, players who think they're doing a little card counting, you know, they want the best possible rules. They don't want the house to shuffle all the time. And 99% of them lose money. And so the casinos eventually gravitate back to making the game be beatable at the edge. As long as it's only beatable by a small number of people, it kind of works. Uh, right. And as uh, long so, as oh, that, those that's rare people who could actually beat the game, don't start betting table maximum, they, they, you know, which is what we did, right? Then it becomes right. the problem. But that's brilliant. What you're saying is that um, they use their vulnerability as a marketing as bait. tool. As bait. Yeah, it's, it's like, bait. yeah, you know, we're not, we're not gonna, yeah, we're not going to shuffle it all the time. Come on in and play. Take, you know, you got a better chance here. Come on and sit down and play right. because they're right. still going to win. <laughs> that's exactly it. With most people, they're still going to win. Okay, Semyon, the MIT Blackjack Club was just famous, infamous, choose it whichever way you wish. But you're a professional blackjack player. You are, you've left 10 grand during the summer way behind in the rearview mirror. Why then, if you're doing this successfully, did you decide to walk away? That's a good question too. So it wasn't because I was kicked out of all the casinos and the jig was up because I was actually kicked out of all the casinos very quickly and continued doing it anyway. <laughs> or because you're missing your kneecaps, as Chuck had suggested Yeah, no, they know. There were a few threats here and there, but really they're big public corporations that they generally just don't do that anymore. Um, it's not really worth it for them, right? We don't really win that much. Um, I got bored of it, right? I just started feeling like it was kind of pointless. You know, it's not like we really made that much money. It was a few million dollars. It wasn't, it seemed like a lot yeah, of yeah. money, right? But, <laughs> but, but by the time we were doing it, it was a few million bucks. I mean, seriously. But, yeah, that's uh, the my, board line. Yeah. Exactly. Wait, that's, no, by Chuck, the way. 
That's a few million. That's a few million dollars in the early nineties. Yeah, you don't understand what money else happened. Back to that into today. You that's have to consider what else happened in, in that time period. Okay, so and where we came from. So yeah, we were the MIT blackjack team, right? I was studying computer science as well, several others. I can, in my own particular specific example, I was in the process of completing a PhD dissertation. Uh, on the very first way to transfer money over the internet. Like, that's the thing. Oh, I okay. I published it. You know, you could look it up. Like, uh, the people who then started PayPal, for example, right, they cited my paper as an earlier work that wasn't very good, perhaps, but it was first. That's what I dropped Just, just to be clear, wasn't that Elon Musk? Yeah, Elon, Elon and uh, Peter Thiel and all those guys, you know, they, they did yeah. better. They, their technology worked better, but it's because I quit, right, to play blackjack. So, no, I, in retrospect, the, I mean, the $1 million I personally made and the $5 million the whole group made were not at all interesting or significant. And we had multiple people come out of the group who became billionaires in technology. Right. So we just wasted a bunch of time, financially speaking. But then there was a whole other side to it, okay? We didn't generate any value. We had no customers. Nobody ever said thank you, right? We just moved money from one place to another. And we felt really smug because we thought we were smarter than these people who work for the casinos. And, you know, okay, so we were smarter than these people. But, you know, so what? Like, that's not really something to be particularly proud of, right? It's interesting. Uh, it, it, what, what you're really talking about here is... But he grew a conscience. He grew a conscience. Uh, well, more that than that is, mm. is, is the value of purpose in what we Ooh. do. Yes. The value of purpose in, in your endeavors probably outweighs any uh, financial gain that you might glean from what it is that you do. Chuck, what, the life counselor. I love it. <laughs> Chuck. The world was kind of funny that way, right? Because um, if you actually follow the sense of purpose and you exceed, and su succeed and excel at that, right? and uh, deliver a lot of value to people who you want to help and and get their gratitude in exchange, right? You're going to end up making way more money than if you just try to make money. Like at the end of the day, you're going to do better anyway. Mm. So, yeah. So, Semyon, you, you said problem. there that the, the MIT Blackjack team basically was a hothouse for future entrepreneurs. Was it just by chance that this happened? Or do you think playing Blackjack the way that you did as a team was enabling people to develop certain parts in the future. Wait, 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 just to be clear. Wait, Gary, Gary, we're talking about MIT here. I was computer, about to say. Computer science people at the birth of an entire internet. Exactly. So, and, and more than that, it's among the computer science people, there's lots of people who just became programmers at Microsoft, right? These are the computer science people who wanted to take risk, who wanted to be entrepreneurial, to think outside the box, to tackle something that's supposed to be impossible, right? These are all personal characteristics conducive to doing really, really well. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's Absolutely. what I'm thinking was the case here. So this, this, this game of blackjack attracted a certain thinker, a certain dynamic within a person that then found another path to take itself forward. So after that, like it was the commercial aspect of it, the fact that we were trying to make money rather than play chess yeah. or, or or play with paper airplanes, right? It was specifically motivated by generating profit. So that combination, right, of the quantitative thinking and discipline and diligence and the desire to do well financially ended up being very lucrative for computer science. Was, was any of it to sticking it to the man? You know, oh, yeah, and, and casinos, course, you yeah. know, casinos. Yeah, definitely about sticking money. it to the man, definitely. Yeah. That was a big part yeah. of it. A big part of it, because you wouldn't do that to a, a homeless shelter 
uh, <laughs> like you would, you'd do it to a casino, right? Uh, that's casino. exactly right. I mean, we really did, you know, there was also a sense of teamwork. There was a little bit of a war going on. It was like us against them and we were the good guys, yes. right? And Very they were the, the evil the people guys. who tricked all the poor people into losing all their money, right? Exactly. The getting exactly. drunk there you go. Right? with free drinks. And we hated them. We really hated them. All right, uh, guys, we got to take a, a quick break. But when we come back, more conversation with Semyon Dukac. We're going to find out what uh, what floats his boat today because it's not the card counting anymore, but he's doing some really cool stuff. We're going to find out when we return on Star Talk Sports Edition. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. We're back, Star Talk Sports Edition, and we've got our our, our, our special guest today, MIT alumnus uh, Semyon Dukac. And uh, Semyon, do you have a social media presence? Or are you do you lead the private life of some? No, no, you can find me Semyon Dukac on Twitter. On Twitter, so S E M Y O N Semyon Dukac D U K A C H. We'll find you there on Twitter. So. So Gary, take us take this thing home. Where are we okay, going? Okay, so we've we've walked away from the tables with a big beaming smile on our face, but you weren't happy. You've become now a mentor. Um why? Was was there was the emptiness of being a blackjack player and just not really having any thanks and gratitude in your life in that regards a reason why you went to mentoring or was there another dynamic in play here? I would say uh, I didn't go straight to mentoring, right? I, I first went back to technology and I started some companies uh, that uh, used more of my skills and knowledge than just blackjack. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely sensed a contrast uh, where customers would buy my software would not only send money, but would also say thank you, right? And, and talk about how the software helped them solve their problems. And that felt really good, right? In a way that blackjack hasn't. Uh, but then I also realized fairly quickly after a few years, by, by the year 2000 or so, that uh, I didn't really want to build my company, a single company, you know, for a decade or two. I enjoyed dabbling in many and I had made some money from selling my first one. And so I started uh, investing uh, for the first 10 or 15 years personally as an angel. Um, I would basically uh, give a founder the early stages, 50 or $100,000 of my money, and I would try to help them. So the mentoring came 
as an add-on to the investing where in addition to putting a lot of money in, I would try to help however I could. I didn't often know how to help, but you know, the, the effort, the motivation really matters. I genuinely wanted to help. Uh, it actually ended up uh, being better for me financially as well because founders would appreciate the help I gave them and I would be referred to other ones. I would see better deals, more interesting companies than I, I used to see before then. And uh, eventually, you know, I got to the point now where I run a venture capital fund and I have you know, hundreds of people behind me and it's just a much more scalable, interesting thing. So that's one-way ventures, correct? That's right. Explain to us, as well as our audience, what the ethos of one-way ventures actually is and why it's so important to you. Yeah, so at one way, you know, we have some beliefs. Uh, we really believe that people from anywhere in the world should be able to go wherever they want to, to build businesses, to get jobs, to create value, right? We fundamentally believe that. We, we don't think uh, that the U.S., for instance, ought to allow more immigrants in just because, on average, immigrants are more likely to create jobs and to add wealth uh, and to, to, to basically give more than they consume in services over the long term. I mean, up front, of course, they'll consume some services. Over the long term, uh, there's a lot of evidence, although economists believe that uh, they, they are actually good for the country that they arrive in and that America is as wealthy as it is, largely because over the last 200 years, we've taken in a lot of immigrants. So that's all true, but that's not the reason we believe that America should allow immigrants to come here and build companies. The reason we think so is that we are immigrants and we think it's our goddamn right to come here whether you like it or not. And you know, we feel very, very strongly about that. We feel that uh, the random uh, documents that you get based on where you were born should not determine your potential, your outcome, your opportunities any more than the color of your skin or any other arbitrary thing you don't control. You don't choose to be born in America or to be born in some other country, right? You're just born where you're born, and I, we think everyone should have equal rights. So uh, that's why we, we focus on immigrants. And it also so happens that immigrants you know, make the best entrepreneurs. Uh, the majority of all very successful companies in the U.S. are started by immigrants. That, that's, that's an absolute fact. About 55% of the, the so-called unicorns have immigrant founders. And uh, let me add, I'd like to add something to that because I do this calculation annually, uh, and it doesn't exist anywhere else except out of my shop, that the... Uh, if you look at the Nobel Prizes in the sciences that are given to American citizens, a third of them have gone to immigrants to the United States. And so that, I mean, that's an extraordinary number, uh, far above, you know, what the, the fraction that immigrants are in the United States when you include not only those who are legally as well as, you know, undocumented, you add those two up, it's like 10%, 12 So it's a factor of three higher than what that is. So so this is just another bit of information there. But you're saying, but but, it, but Semyon, what you're saying there is is not entirely realistic. For Let me just, so you came to the United States uh, from Moscow, from Soviet Union Moscow, when basically there's a wall. All right, I know the wall's in Berlin, but there's a, there's a philosophical wall. If that wall did not exist, and it was still the Soviet Union, uh, and you didn't have KGB or whatever else, and borders stopped, do you think everyone would have left the Soviet Union the way you did? No, I, I think most people would never leave their home. There's tremendous social pressure. Your network, your community, everybody wants you to stay. You, 
in order to permanently leave the place you grew up, you kind of have to betray your whole community in a sense. You have to right, abandon right, them. Right. And they're not going to root for you. You know, they're going to hope you fail because they're envious. Right. And uh, it takes a special kind of person uh, who is willing to take on that hardship, who has an unusual level of ambition, right? Believe in themselves, drive, an axe to grind, a chip on their shoulder, right? These are not ordinary people. Well, so there's, these are people who are highly upwardly mobile because of their ambitions. And That's you're right. saying and they should be able to exit their country and go anywhere in the world wherever they are welcomed or, or embraced. I, I, I just want to know why they can't come from Norway. That's all. <laughs> Where are the Norwegians when you need them? You know it. I know it. America first. That's yeah, it. and I think in that logic, you know, I think the gentleman who said that is severely underestimating, you know, the folks that are coming here from Africa and from South America. I think yes. he is judging them by, by stereotypes that, that fail to take into account that these are actually select individuals. Like most people in South America don't make it to the U.S. Even if you take the really uneducated ones that will require a lot more services, not the folks with computer science degrees or whatever, right? But, but the really poor and educated people who walk, like, walk on foot in caravans, right, and make it all the way to the borders in, in Texas and Arizona and California, you know, they're still extraordinary. And if, and I would say if I had a, a construction business and I had to hire a bunch of people for demolition, I would absolutely hire people from the caravan or anybody who had an easier time who was born here because it takes a very extraordinary person to, to walk 2,000 miles on foot, you know. It's just most people would not do that. Absolutely. So... So are you telling, are you saying, Semyon, that uh, an immigrant's life story is more predisposed to the probability of success in a startup because of all of the things you've just highlighted? Yeah. That's why you, that's why you, that's why you get involved. And the, and the reason, you know, we're able to raise a hundred million dollars and invest it and now show, you know, more than tripling in, in, in the first five years kind of results, the reason uh, it's working out so well is that we actually have hard data to support that. Like, uh, I mean, we can guess. <laughs> we have theories about why immigrants make the best. Says the man from MIT, we got right. data, right? <laughs> exactly, right. We believe that there's all these reasons that I'm talking about for why these immigrant founders are more likely to build big businesses, but it doesn't really matter what we believe or, or what those reasons might be. It's what the data is. 55% of the unicorns were started by immigrants. A much smaller percentage of all companies in America was started by immigrants, but 55%, over half of the unicorns was started by immigrants. That's a fact, yeah. right? So it's it's no coincidence that with our thesis, our fund is having really great results. What you're talking about are, is is a um, an allocation of resources that we are the beneficiary, where we are the beneficiary to this allocation of resources. People coming here and making a contribution. And I forget this gentleman's name, but he's, he's, uh, he's Indian, came here and somehow the, the visa didn't work out. And, you know, being Indian, and this was under, you know, this particular anti-immigration administration. And I think it was the, you know, um, his visa being revoked and had to leave. And so he said, I, here I am. I just got out of Princeton or Harvard, I forget. And I'm back in India. I'm basically kicked out of the United States where I just spent like uh, 12 years in school. 
So what did I do? Well, I started an internet company. It's now like the second largest internet company. You know, it's the largest in India and like third largest in the world. Or In other words, what he did was he took everything that this country had to offer and he planted it someplace else. So, you know, when you allow people to come here and you allow people to flourish and contribute, what you're doing is making everything better. You know, but the only thing that stops that, believe it or not, I'm sorry to say it, is bigotry and 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 bias. That's it. Because there is no actual data that you can say, for instance, one quick little thing and I'll shut up. Oh, they're bringing crime. They're bringing crime. No. <laughs> so, sorry, guys. You know, these things feel good when you say them. They're like a rallying cry, but it's bullshit. I'm sorry. It's 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 not true. So this is Chuck Martin Luther King nice speaking to us now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Simeon, um, we've done what you've your past. We we've we've looked at the now. What's next in your life? Have you have you got this map or is it just, you know, one day at a time? Well, uh, we have a long way to go with one way, certainly. Uh, mm -hmm. We are still growing. We are opening more locations and uh, raising larger funds down the road. But uh, this year, I've spent uh, quite a bit of time as well on the nonprofit that I actually started with my wife in February uh, that uh, helps uh, refugees uh, from the war in Ukraine get cash in their hands to actually improve their day to day to give them a sense of agency. So I've, I've made several trips down there and I'm heading over there again uh, soon. Um, All right. And beyond that, I mean, I have six kids, so there's plenty of stuff to keep me busy. Wow. wow. Just six. six. I'm going to say, you better be rich. <laughs> <laughs> unless he, unless he's taking his playbook from your da your daddy, that's a, that's a different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. So this this has been a, a wonderful story, just to hear. Uh, and the story is a certain uniqueness to it. So take us out with some some uh, reflective thoughts f just to make a better world, because there's a lot of crap going on out there in the world right now. Uh, what, what wisdom do you have based on your life experience? Well, I think, uh, I think as a person, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I stopped uh, worrying so much about how can I make the most money and actually started caring more about doing some good to others, together with my existing skill set, you know, I was able to do better. And I think uh, the parting thought is that perhaps as a nation, uh, we can do the same. That if we think a little bit more about how to make the world a better place, I want to do the right thing, right? And when you think about foreign policy, you know, what's actually right? What, what maximizes human rights? Not only short term, what's best for our national interest, but what's the right thing to do? In the very long term, we're going to do the best ourselves as well. In the story told about immigrants, it's just one example. Let's not worry about the fact that they create wealth here. Let's just let them in because we recognize their right to come in, right? And what will follow from that is that they'll come here and not somewhere else, and we're going to all do way better. Right, right. Love it. All right, dude. All right. Semyon, thank you for joining us on Star Talk. That was really fun. All it right, cool. all right. Gary, Chuck, always good to have you there, dude. Pleasure, pleasure, Neil. Thank you. All right, this has been Star Talk Sports Edition, all about card counting and... Uh, doing the right thing in the world before, during, and after. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you mm -hmm. take take the casino to the bank. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. As always, keep looking up.
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call. Text or chat 988 for free confidential support anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.